This is Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you each month by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. I'm Caitlin Barker, and I'm here with my co-host, Holly Cedarholm. Holly, who did you interview for today's show? Hi, Caitlin. For today's conversation, I'm joined by Laura Seeger and Lydia Pendergast for a discussion of all things apples. Laura is the orchard manager for the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, and Lydia is a student at College of the Atlantic who interned with Mafka for the past two summers. And we talked about fruit exploration and historic fruit documentation and the importance of preserving these fruits. Great. Stay tuned to hear more about Heritage Apples on Common Ground Radio. Today on Common Ground Radio, we are digging into the importance of preserving heritage fruits and what's involved in stewarding these varieties for future generations. I'm joined by Laura Seeger, Orchard Manager for the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, known as MAFCA, in Unity, Maine. And also Lydia Pendergast, a student at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, who has worked as an orchard intern with MAFCA for the past two summers. Laura and Lydia, welcome to Common Ground Radio. Thanks, Holly. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. I'd like to start by having each of you further introduce yourselves and talk about your work related to orchards and fruit preservation and how you came to be involved in it. I'm Laura Seeger. I am the orchard manager here at Mafka, and um, we care for three orchards on the site here in Unity. The Maine Heritage Orchard is a collection of between three and 400 um, apple and pear trees. And we have two one acre orchards um, on the fairgrounds, which were planted around 99 or 2000. And I work with a small crew here at Mafka during the growing season. And then in the winter, I cut back my hours at Mafka and work for Fedco, collecting and processing scion wood and uh, doing some fruit tree pruning. My name is Lydia Pendergast. I'm a fourth year student at COA and during my time there, I've interned with the Heritage Orchard two seasons now, learning from Laura and the crew about orchard management and care and pest identification and what goes into organic orcharding. And I've been able to integrate a lot of the historical research I've been doing at COA, as well as some database management things as well. Well, I'm really excited to have you both here to talk about the Heritage Orchard and some of the preservation work you're doing and the historical research. And I'd like to start by just orienting our listeners to what the Heritage Orchard is. So it's a 10-acre preservation orchard situated in Unity in a reclaimed gravel pit. And I'm wondering if we could talk about how the collection came to be and what do we mean when we're saying heritage orchard? Oof, yeah, good question. Um, something we've discussed a lot late in the last several years. The first trees were planted in 2014 and that, that first planting was about a hundred trees. I was barely involved at that point. John Bunker was the one who uh, spearheaded this project and selected the apple varieties um, to be planted that year and did all the grafting and grew those nursery trees for two years prior to planting. And so the the first year planting was a lot of the old classics, a lot of the varieties that were commonly grown in Maine 
um, as well as some really rare varieties um, that were grown maybe in some cases only in certain towns or counties and never widely distributed. Yeah, I'd say that a lot of the trees represent cultivars that were grown very locally, specifically in Maine, so specific to even town lines. Back to your question of um, what makes an apple a heritage apple, I have a little bit of squeamishness around the word heritage, even though it's in the title of our orchard and there uh, been a lot of good conversations around like whose heritage it is and what what that means to each of us who are involved in the project and to other people who are, you know, observing it or um, made aware of it. In my mind, we really could just be called the like main historic orchard because we use the 1933-34 winter freeze as sort of a cutoff date as to which varieties we select to put in the orchard. That that winter there was a just a massive freeze that caused the death of many hundreds, thousands, maybe multiple thousands of fruit trees. There were sort of like reports of trees exploding, like filling with ice and cracking and trunks exploding. And a bunch of the, even though like ironclad, the hardy varieties that were grown um, didn't make it through that winter. So there was, there was a big shift after that as to what, which cultivars were being cultivated, planted, propagated, sold widely in the state. The genetic diversity doesn't drop off from there, but the the diverse plantings drop off from there. So instead, of, there was a shift from these orchards where everybody had a home orchard of like 10 to 12 varieties. And the, even the, the large commercial orchards had a wider array of varieties and they would have sort of a small home orchard in addition to their like Ben Davis orchard or their wealthies or whatever. And so the the trees that were planted after that became a lot of like Max and Cortland and Red Delicious and um, there was this shift into like modern ag um, in the orchard world. So the varieties that are growing in the heritage orchard, some of them are varieties that are like commercially grown still, but they're largely uh, <laughs> the ones that phased out. And we're also now getting to a getting to an interesting point with the climate and watching our trees grow, which are you know now eight or so years old, the oldest ones. And watching some of them really not thriving in their site, and there, um, you know, there's a reason why there was a shift in um, in taste and in in the variety selection. And there's a lot of really incredible varieties that got left behind, which are really thrifty and vigorous and grow well. But there are also um, there's some there's some trees that are just so severely struggling. And our work is to preserve those as well. But we've been thinking a lot this season about like what length do we go to to preserve some of these that are um, in a renovated gravel pit <laughs> that's not irrigated? I have a couple of follow-up questions from that, but I'm first curious to hear if there are certain varieties that seem to be standouts in terms of this maybe unintentional climate change trial that you have in this specific site. Yes. Lydia, I want to give you the opportunity first to, to say any that stick out to you, and then I'll, I'll jump into. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it feels very random which ones end up sticking out. And we aren't sure if it's specifically location of which where they are planted in the orchard, because across the 10 acres, there is a range of what soil they might be experiencing and what water drainage they might be getting. On some of our lower terraces, we have two or three trees that seem to have just sprout up 
so tall um, versus the trees planted maybe even a year before are still at a smaller height. I think the Aristic Sunset is one of that stands out for me. It's really loaded with fruit this year. Uh, and our Jonathan tree is doing good for like the second year in a row. Yeah, and Jonathan is one of those that's made it into like Jonathan's a commercial apple still. Um, but yeah, that Aristic Sunset and the Blenheim Orange next to it are like rock stars. There are a few more that just that are like super vigorous and um, and seem to not be not be badly affected by the climate. Well, some, so some of them are like cultivars proper and others are selected seedlings from like really old trees that have fared well. So Gideon is an old variety. That's a nice apple that that tree is just like, it, it looks great. The tree looks really good. It's had fruit the last couple of few years and um, is one of the tallest trees we've got. Oh, there's another one I was just Oh, one of our duchess trees. We happen to have a lot of duchess in there and they're mostly doing well. Um, but one or two of them in particular are are also just like super robust. And there is a seedling, um, a, a wild apple from Trescott, which is just, um, the tag says Trescott, Elizabeth Benjamin, which is who found it. And um, that tree has stood out for years as looking like one of the most vigorous, healthy trees our Grimes Golden looks pretty nice. And oh, there are a couple more that in my mind have always been like really nice ones and I'm, they're not coming to mind right now. Sorry, trees. That's okay. I am thinking a little bit about our listeners and what they may or may not know about the biology of apples and I wonder how having the apple trees as living genetic reservoirs affects the apple diversity in the state moving forward. So growing a heritage apple tree from seed is different than planting, say, an heirloom pepper seed. When I plant a seed of a known pepper variety, the fruit of that plant will bear seeds of the same genetic makeup, but that's not the case with apple trees. So if I find an apple fruit that I like growing on a tree, say in an old field, I can't just take that apple and then plant the seeds of it expecting to get the same fruit. So I'm hoping you can explain a little bit about how apple biology works and how that plays into preservation. Yeah, correct. I know I think that that, well, that was like one of the most amazing things that I first learned about apples is that that truth of not replicating a variety from seed. You have to graft a tree. You have to make a clone to get the variety you want. Apples are extreme heterozygous, which means that every seed is a cross between two parent plants. So from that seed, you get a unique tree. And while it's true that some seeds will grow true to type, like we see in Duchess seedlings and in Ufka, seedlings as well. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to propagate an apple that is the exact fruit that you're looking for, you have to take either a cyan wood or a bud or do layering to duplicate it. Um, and a lot of these different methods are done at different times of the year. I know that Fedco tree does a lot of bench grafting and a lot of the trees in the heritage orchard have been grafted from cyanwood collected throughout the state of Maine and raised in nursery beds and then transplanted 
into the heritage orchard itself. How long does an apple tree live on average? And are we at risk of losing some of the, the old tiny um, cultivars that Laura was mentioning people used to have in their homestead orchards or even some of the seedlings that have sort of sprouted up and may have value to our food system? Oof. Yep, that's a big uh, that's a big question, and like something that's sort of weighing heavily on our minds. Uh, I think especially this this summer, with like going into an, another year of drought, um, and watching a lot of you know a lot of plants are suffering this year, but the trees are really suffering. Many people have probably noticed just driving around that there's a lot more yellow and brown trees on, leaves on trees, like on our big healthy shade trees, you know. And the, the brown tail certainly hasn't helped with that. But, um, you know, apple trees grown on seedling or standard rootstock can live for a couple hundred years. We could delve right into a rootstock conversation, but we won't. Um, we'll just say that, like, the smaller the rootstock, uh, the dwarfing rootstocks, the smaller the size of the tree, the shorter lived they are. Most of the trees that we have been finding these old varieties from were grown on seedling stock. They could have the potential to live very long lives. Um, but we, I think that we will be seeing a sharp decline in old living trees um, in the next few years. I think that this season's been really brutal on top of like a few other pretty challenging seasons. Uh, the winters are getting worse. There's, you know, they're not just too cold, but they, they warm up in the spring and then they get cold again. And that can be really tough on undormant plants. And so like, you know, rootstocks are, they're sort of bred for their winter hardiness, but not for this, like this buffer season we're seeing in the spring where, where it warms up and gets cold. That, that's a real, uh, that's a real challenge for fruit trees. I am still seeing a lot of living old fruit trees, but I, the work does feel pretty critical right now. There are, I'm sure there are hundreds, thousands of trees in the state we haven't seen. Um, we have like a pretty, pretty robust group of fruit explorers all over the state, um, but there are, they're hidden everywhere. And so I think keeping an eye out for old trees that are still alive at this point is, uh, is really, yeah, quite important. Can we talk a little bit about what it means to be a fruit explorer? Yeah, totally. All you, Lydia. <laughs> okay, yeah. Fruit explorers are a variety of people, some with an orcharding background. Some people uh, come from a cider background and are interested in, um, and some people are just really passionate about finding these old cultivars throughout the state of Maine. Basically what a fruit explorer does is they invest their time and energy and resources into historical research and driving around the state of Maine, physically looking or looking through documents or combing through old recordings to find mentions of old orchards and old cultivars and documenting these and then sharing them with the wider community. And I'd say that they play a really important role into what the Heritage Orchard is today and being a fruit explorer myself, I'd say it's a really fun fall activity in itself. 
I'm trying to think of like the toolkit of the fruit explorer. It's kind of this cross between horticulture and historical research and a little bit of a food interest, maybe if you're interested in cider making or those sorts of things. So I'm trying to imagine what kind of maybe literal tools, but also maybe like metaphorical tools that you have in your kit as a fruit explorer to help you on these quests to find different apples. Yeah, I'd say that one of the biggest things that I think a fruit explorer can have is a keen sense of observation and also a keen sense of committing to doing something for a long period of time. Because 80% of the time, you're running into a lot of seedling trees. The number of seedling trees in Maine actually outnumber the number of people that live in the state of Maine. So finding the older fruit trees in the orchards takes a lot of both knowledge about how apple trees grow, but also just being able to recognize what you're seeing in an orchard and the fruit that you're seeing. And that's kind of where taste comes in as well, because sometimes the flavor of fruit can key you into whether or not it is cultivated to a certain degree. Yeah. So part of that visual cue, correct me if I'm wrong, is to distinguish whether or not the tree had been grafted. So you're talking about earlier propagating apple trees from cyan wood. So if you're trying to distinguish whether a tree was a seedling tree, which established from a seed dropping and growing up into a tree from a sort of a cultivated tree, one of the cues is to look for that, that graft line. Yes, though sometimes, oftentimes the graft line's invisible. Um, if there's a nice match between the rootstock and the cyan wood. But I think there are lots of lots of other little clues that sort of indicate that a tree was planted um, or cultivated. And so like looking at the spacing of trees, if you find a single apple tree, like, you know, is that near an old stone foundation? Or is that, is it sort of evenly spaced on a grid with a couple other trees or a bunch of other trees? Oftentimes there's um, you know, there's not a lot left of the old orchards, but you might find two or three trees. And if you sort of pace them out or look at them from a distance, if they're not totally grown up over, you can see that there was a grid and they were often planted at like 20 to 30 foot spacing. Um, but there were also lots of, uh, lots of like single trees by houses or a dozen trees next to a, an old farmhouse. Um, and I also, I just want to mention on this like topic of fruit exploring, if folks have not heard of NAFEX, the North American Fruit Explorers, you should know about that. <laughs> you should look that up. Um, and it's a it's a really great community of um, of people across North America who are um, you know into into fruit for you know various reasons. Um, there's a lot of like the historic preservation work. There's also a lot of people who are um, who are into you know seedling plants. Um, and like I think. Also, anyone can be a fruit explorer. Like if you've stopped on the side of a dirt road to pick some raspberries or blackberries, you are also a fruit explorer. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's part of it. It's like this finding, um, finding fruit that, um, you know, that's being underutilized oftentimes. And then some like physical toolkit things that might be handy are a pole picker because apple trees are they often have fruit way up high. The nicest fruit is like at the tippity top. And it's not always practical to carry an apple ladder around with you. Um, though that's my preference is to just keep a ladder in the truck all 
uh, well, starting now pretty much, but a pole picker, they have these like telescoping pickers that you can throw in the back of any car or you could probably fasten to a bicycle pretty easily. Um, and baskets and bags are useful and a Sharpie to write on your paper bags of what you collected where if you're trying to keep track of it for any sort of, um, any sort of purposes besides eating your fruit right away. You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio. On today's show, we're discussing fruit exploration in Maine with a focus on documentation and preservation of heritage apples. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and my guests today are Laura Seeger and Lydia Pendergast of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. I'd like to continue on this topic of fruit exploration and talk a little more about the historical records piece and how that plays into finding and documenting apples that are still in existence today. Yes, I think we should discuss that. I also took a moment because I was just sort of kicking myself for not thinking earlier that we should have invited our friend Dan Newman um, to be on this on the show today. Dan is in Palermo and has just done an incredible amount of research um, into the varieties that have been grown in Maine for the last uh, couple centuries. And what he's done with that, and I'll let Lydia speak more to this because I, um, I've looked at some of Dan's work and um, have also seen some of what Lydia has done, but have not done much of any of this myself. Um, but Dan has gone through just like many, many records from old um, agricultural fairs, looking at the fair premiums and looking through newspapers of what was listed um, for each town or county um, because they, they had the varieties and the growers listed. Um, and that has been just like a hugely helpful part of this like detective work in piecing together like what could this old variety from this old tree be? Um, because we, you know, Lydia and I have both learned a lot from John Bunker about how to identify some of the varieties of apples. Um, and the Heritage Orchard has been a great resource now that it's fruiting to be able to learn what those varieties look like and identify varieties from old trees based on that. Um, but being able to narrow it down from like, you know, 7,000 varieties <laughs> to like, you know, even a couple dozen or a few dozen is really useful is to sort of be able to look at this, this list or this spreadsheet that's like being compiled um, and just figure out like, you know, was Gideon something that was grown in that town? Um, would you find an Alexander here? Is, uh, is Judy ever gonna be in like Cumberland County? So there are like, there are lots of ways of figuring out the variety beyond just like looking at the apple itself and trying to think like, what's this red stripey apple? So having some historical context of what, um, you know, what was being submitted to fairs um, when, these, when these apples were, uh, you know, being grown and cared for and, and sold in markets um, has been like a really helpful tool I've found. You want to say more about that, Lydia? I know you've been like in that work a little more deeply. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that the key thing that we are looking for through these historical documents is a name and a location and either a list of the fruit that this person was growing or 
if we're lucky, sometimes a description of the fruit that is growing. Um, another thing that I've found really interesting to discover over time is sometimes you'll find records of people sharing scion and mailing scion to each other, which shows a really interesting connection to different states and even up to Canada here in Maine. There have been some records in the um, Bangor Horticultural Society records that I've been looking through that have mentioned several trips to the Montreal Horticultural Society where um, cultivars have been shared back and forth. And yeah, I think getting a better idea of what was grown regionally through these records. And an amazing part of this has been as records have become increasingly available through the internet is I've been able to look at resources across the globe basically to investigate in more detail and on a wider scope. Lydia, are there any specific cultivars that you're working on um, sort of tracking down or investigating more deeply right now? Uh, I wouldn't say there are any particular cultivars that I've been looking into. A lot of the work that I've been doing has been compiling lists and trying to narrow down. One thing that we do run into with the historical records is some Many cultivars are kept underneath synonyms, especially regionally. So being able to figure out when something is being called by a synonym or is being interchanged for another type of apple um, becomes part of the work as well. So how do you dig into distinguishing between different apples in the historical record that have been called by different names. My understanding is that Maka is currently working with Washington State University to conduct DNA research to sequence the entire collection of the Maine Heritage Orchard. And I'm wondering if DNA is part of that or do you have other tools that you're using to rectify the historical record to make sure you're not keeping track of duplicates of apples? Yeah, where to start with the DNA stuff? <laughs> Yeah, I'm feeling like the, our DNA project is a little bit on hold, sequencing the entire collection. We're, um, we're still sort of working through results that we're getting back from what we submitted last year. But we, yeah, we are finding a ton of duplicates. Um, definitely, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of varieties that have like a little more variation than like in appearance than we thought before. There's a whole slew of greenings which a lot of them have turned out to be Rhode Island greening which you know which the fruit from the original trees they were collected from did not look like a typical Rhode Island greening some of them had like a pretty significant orange blush some of them are were largely russeted uh, there's another that I think had like pretty prominent pink blush and they just they didn't look like the standard um, Rhode Island greening and so there's lots of those um, Duchess is another one I know we've mentioned that a bunch of times that Duchess was propagated from seed a lot in rustic, especially, um, and they they come relatively true to type from seed. So there are a lot of named Duchess seedlings which were grown and recorded also like mostly in a rustic. And cyanwood was given to to John Bunker for a, many of these different 
supposed duchess seedlings and they have all come back through that dna testing all yeah pretty much all um to that they are duchess they're they're clones so they were they were not the the seedlings that we were looking for so they're still the so new brunswicker and nutting bumpus and help me lydia yes i believe oh hess yeah hess which we thought was haas so those three um are all just our standard duchess so we're still looking for um for haas or maybe hess new brunswicker and nutting bumpus the old descriptions you know it said they looked a lot like duchess but they they shouldn't be identical um so there's definitely some like confusion there and <laughs> sorting stuff out I'm not a self-identified fruit explorer and most of the apples I see are those at farmer's markets or at the, the local co-op. But as I look more and more into um, pictures and descriptions of apples, I'm just surprised to see all the different appearances of apples. And maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the key characteristics to visually IDing apples, whether that's shape or color or, or things that people might not know about yeah um yeah so definitely like shape size color there are i'm also I'm, i've been working this is terrible but for years maybe five years now i've been working on the little like zine type book of sort of parts of an apple like how to describe an apple um with some friends in portland um and maybe that'll be out sometime soon after it's illustrated but there are a lot of different shapes of an apple. Round is an obvious one. Uh, most apples are round, but they are not all round. <laughs> Oblate is like flattened or sort of like pancake is, is too far, but like think of a donut peach maybe is an oblate apple. Uh, oblong would be like tall, like uh, what is the type of tomato? <laughs> it's long. Like a paste tomato? Like a paste tomato, thank you. And I, I couldn't think of the word paste. Yeah, oblong is like a paste tomato. Um, ribbed, I guess, is sort of a shape description. You could think about a pumpkin or a bell pepper. Sometimes they're, well, I think of a bell pepper more as like a lobed shape for an apple. It's because the ribbed apples are really pretty uniformly ribbed usually. And if you, you know, cut them across the center and like got the star shape in the apple, they would have like sort of a flower pattern, but occasionally apples are lobed. Like they'll have, you know, three or four lobes, like a bell pepper. Conic is another shape. And these all can like, a lot of them can be combined. So the shapes are not super straightforward. Um, conic uh, and like sheep nose shaped, which is if you just think about what a sheep looks like from the side in profile, sheep nose um, is a little more dramatic than conic. What am I missing? You got more than I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but so shape, size, color. Stem can be like a good indicator. And then there's the cavity, which is the stem well, where the, you know, where the stem sits. That's called the cav. The basin is, or the apex of the apple is the, um, where the calyx is, the blossom end. Those, those all have different shapes. You can get like way deep in this, <laughs> looking at apple descriptions and the botanical terms for those. The ripening season is huge for being able to identify um, varieties. There are, you know, if you find a, a red apple early in the season that's ripe, um, you know, it's, it's not gonna be a Baldwin. Baldwins are super late. So yeah, ripening time is, is critical. Well, I can see why there might be some 
not confusion, but occurrence of multiple names for the same variety, because there are clearly a lot of distinguishing factors for apples that can be compounded on top of each other. With the sheer number of apples in existence, it seems like there's a lot to, to learn about the fruit to correctly identify them. I'm wondering, do you see the DNA sequencing as a good step forward in helping to to correctly identify apples and therefore preserve these known varieties. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, it's been critical. It's like really uh, reduced the workload that um, that John. I mean, John Bunker does a lot of our sort of identification work, um, but that Lydia and I have also um, benefited from is like just being able to rule some things out is and just say like, yep, this is the same as that. Um, is amazing. There's sort of a growing pool of, of cultivars that have been tested and it's, it's global, um, but not every variety is in the data set. Um, so there's still, there's still a lot of mystery. A lot of our samples come back not matched to anything or um, maybe more often than not, um, they're not a match to something, but there's a bit of their pedigree that shows up. So it'll show a great grandparent or show a cousin or a half sib. Um, so it's super helpful and really fun, but it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't tell you what every single variety is. So there's still a lot of this like historical research component that's, um, that's essential for, for even just trying to narrow it down to a few possibilities. Assuming more and more apples get sequenced, that sort of fruit fingerprint set will grow and the tool will become even more useful for that purpose. Yeah, completely. So there's actually, there's a pretty good example, um, which I could either pull up our spreadsheet or maybe Lydia has a better memory than I. Um, there's, an, there's an apple that we submitted a sample from and the DNA samples, this is um, maybe not like intuitive, but we send in the, you know, the teeny tiny fresh fuzzy leaves, not apples themselves for the DNA sequencing. <laughs> um, but one of the samples we sent came back, not as a match to anything with a name, but to two other, you know, unnamed cultivars, one in, I want to say Colorado and another in Idaho. I believe that we did uh, confirm that it's connected to a variety that is found in Colorado, but I don't, I'm not sure about the Idaho part. The sample that we had submitted that matched from, uh, matched a couple of others was provisionally named Sorrento. Um, and that matched to, looks like one called Sarah Miller, <laughs> one called, called Bellingham. So those were our, um, the, our others. So this is, this has been an exciting opportunity for this other group that we're working with. Um, which is maybe called the North American Historic Fruit Working Group. Super long title, might be wrong. Um, but we've been working with um, other people doing historical research and fruit preservation around, um, well, I guess in North America, we have a Canadian guy now on our group. Um, and so this has been a good opportunity for that group, which is working on um, many projects, but one of which is sort of verifying lost apples or like have coming up with a process of how to double check and triple check each other's work with these historical documents and old fruit descriptions. And so this is an exciting one for us to begin working on um, because we each have lists in our different, you know, in our respective areas of what was grown 
in that town or county or state um, at the time we think that fruit tree was probably planted. And so it'll be super exciting when we begin to be able to hone down, um, like come up with a few, a few options of what we think this cultivar is. Lydia, do you have anything to, to add about why DNA sequencing is important to the fruit exploration work? Yeah, I think that absolutely, I see the historical research and the genetic testing as working together. I think that in a lot of ways, the genetic information that we get from these trees can fit in really nicely with the historical research that we do. Say we get results back that show a certain pedigree or heritage um, of the tree, like it's related to say Duchess or Baldwin. Um, and we know that Duchess Baldwin was grown in this region. And we know that the historical records show this tree being the child of at least one of those cultivars. It gives a lot of support to the historical research that we've done and a lot of the groundwork that's been done. And I think that with the genetic uh, information growing, more people can begin to test these trees and we can have more information being collected and our understanding of how the trees have developed over time will be really interesting to see. I'm wondering how people who might be enthusiastic about contributing to this work can get involved in protecting and stewarding apple varieties. Can anyone submit these fuzzy leaf samples for DNA testing? Is that an option? Or what are some of the ways that you encourage people to, to help out? I think there are a bunch of great ways that people can help out. DNA samples can be submitted directly to my fruittree.org, which is run through the Washington State University that we partner with. You can also support the Heritage Orchard through stewarding a tree, which is through Fedgo Trees. If you order a tree through our stewardship program, you get a tree that is a duplicate to one of our trees in the Heritage Orchard. And we are always looking for people to donate and support as well. Yeah, and if you're if you have an old apple tree or know of old apple trees, um, you can always bring fruit to the Common Ground Fair to have John, Todd, Lydia, and I look at it and see if we know what it is or um, more exciting if we don't know what it is and maybe should add it to the collection, although that's also kind of on pause for various reasons. But we'd be happy to look at your fruit. It's super helpful if you bring photos of the tree of like specifically of the, the tree trunk and information about um, where it was grown and any historical records you might find. Like if you find historical records about who was living there at the time or what the farm may have been called, sometimes your town office or historical society will have that information available to you. So the more information that you bring to us, the better. Um, looking at apples is fun, but looking at apples out of context is not the most productive <laughs> way to use our time. Um, so we welcome Apple submissions. It's also very fun to learn how to graft. And by learning how to graft fruit trees, you can have, uh, you know, you could have those, the old trees 
um, you know, in your yard or at your neighbor's house or whatever, sort of uh, saved as a little backup as well. We, we don't have a lot of capacity for like taking in every fruit tree. We'd love to. I wish we were, you know, like the USDA collection in Geneva and just could have, you know, thousands of, uh, of varieties, but we don't have we don't have the staff for that. We don't have the budget for that. So our collection has to stay small. But by learning to graft, you can share these varieties, even if you don't know the name. And that's another thing. Like, you know, we attach names to things and we, um, there's like a value placed on um, cultivars just based on like their names and the nostalgia. But really it's like, if you like the apple, you, na- you should name it whatever you want, whether that's provisional or that's the name that sticks. And, um, and then you graft that tree and you share them. And then that you know, those genetics are preserved in the world, even if there's no name attached. The names are like, you know, they're not the most essential. This is Common Ground Radio on WERU-FM 89.9. Today's discussion is focused on apples. Specifically, we're talking about heritage fruits, their importance, and how to keep them around and alive for generations to come. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and I'm joined today by Laura Seeger and Lydia Pendergast of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Laura manages Mofka's orchards, including the Maine Heritage Orchard in Unity, Maine. The orchard is home to more than 380 trees with over 300 varieties of apples and about a dozen pears traditionally grown in Maine. Lydia is wrapping up her second summer as an intern working with Mofka's orchards. Laura, you were talking about how the Maine Heritage Orchard is limited by some of the practical management aspects of a of an orchard. And it seems like there's a lot of work that goes into any agricultural practice, including orcharding. And specifically, I'm thinking about organic and holistic orchard care. And I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the the touchstones to organic orcharding and orchard care at Mofka. Yes. I'll be blunt about it. I'm having like a real come to Jesus moment this season with our orchards here. Um, it's been just like an immense struggle to keep trees alive in a gravel pit managed holistically. Um, we're losing trees like left and right and the orchard is not looking awesome this season. Um, and I have been thinking a lot about um, orchardists and growers I know whose um, whose operations feel to me like a success. So, you know, planting on flat ground, I would highly recommend to anyone or like gentle slopes. So great. And I think that holistic orcharding is definitely the way we need to shift all orcharding, you know, pesticides um, and bactericides and fungicides while they're used in organic and holistic growing, they are not sustainable. Um, we do, we really need to figure out how to grow climate resistant, climate resilient trees. And I think that no spray operations are likely, um, you know, where, where the future of orcharding lies. I think that mostly means a huge adjustment to our standards of fruit quality. I think that means like being, being willing to work with, um, with pest damage, being willing to work with like losing some trees from disease. Um, and also like being willing to make hard decisions about when to spray, um, when to intervene um, and when to, when to apply a pesticide or a fungicide or a bactericide. Um, I've done a ton of spraying this summer at Mafka and so has Lauren Cormier. <laughs> She's taken a lot of it. Um, 
but I think that like organic orcharding is really not easy. We have very few organic orchards in the state for that reason and in the region. Um, there are a lot of orchardists I know who, are, who have shifted from like an IPM or commercial model towards holistic or who have started holistic orcharding, but maybe don't have the organic certification. Um, and I think, you know, fruit growing is, it's challenging, but it's also really fun and rewarding um, when you sort of figure some things out. And every season is pretty much better than the last because you learn a bit more. But setting your expectations that uh, they're not going to have perfect fruit, I think is, that's what I've been trying to teach myself this season is that, um, is that our standards for supermarket first quality fruit are really unrealistic if we want a sustainable fruit growing future. What are some of the major pests and diseases that are challenging to you to manage organically? Uh, honestly, all of them are, but fire blight has been a big one this year. Um, you know, and even, even IPM or commercial orchards are struggling with fire blight. There's resistance to streptomycin. Um, there, there are not, there are varieties that are super susceptible. Um, so again, like I, yeah, fireblade is a whole thing as they all are in choosing, um, you know, choosing varieties that appear to have some resistance to that. We have also been maybe dealing with some collar rot on our trees, which doesn't look great. Round-headed apple tree borers are like the bane of my existence. <laughs> we spend so many hours on our bellies, scraping away at trunks, looking for borers, um, squishing borers, painting trunks. Um, brown tail moth, as most people likely know, are a, a pest to many of our um, big trees in Maine. We, you know, we've had some of the ones that aren't so bad are like the fall webworms, which are out right now. I think they shouldn't be called fall webworms, but just webworms. Um, and the eastern tent caterpillars in the spring, there's a whole host of caterpillars, aphids, leafhoppers, um, but codling moth and apple maggot fly are are two pests that affect the fruit that are really a pain to, to time sprays correctly or to hang enough traps to be effective. Um, and they, yeah, I mean, nobody likes a worm in their apple, but <laughs> apple maggot and codling moth are in, in a bunch of them. I'm wondering if there's any varieties that might be doing better in holistic orchard systems. Hmm. Yeah, I would, I would love if we had some more information on that. I'm, I'm pretty hesitant to draw conclusions from our orchards just because we have a, a, an extremely small sample size in the most case one, <laughs> like one variety of each um, in short of an odd site. But I am pretty excited that we've been um, doing some scion trades with, with Rose Hill Farm, which is in the Hudson Valley of New York. And they are a holistic orchard. They're big, um, like, commercial operation, but they, they do a killer job. They grow the best fruit and they're growing a lot of interesting, uh, historic varieties as well as like modern varieties and cider varieties and, um, you know, European stuff, French things, uh, whatever. Um, but we've done some science exchanges. And so I'm really excited to see what Kevin's fruit is going to look like in the next few years, once their top work stuff is coming along. Cause I think that really the way to tell um, you know, which, which varieties as a whole are like doing well or to grow them out on scale. And so they're also, I mean, the apple farm in Fairfield and Sandy River apples in Mercer 
and um, Five Star in Brooklyn. Five Star is one of like the very few organic farms. They also have great fruit. They, you know, they they have a little bit better of a scale that you can tell like, yeah, this is a variety that's doing well. This is a variety that's not doing well. And so the apple farm grows really nice gray pear mains and Tolman sweet. I'd say those two, I think they're also related. Um, I think Tolman sweet is gray pear mains parent one of its parents. Those are two varieties that seem like really robust and um, resilient to a lot of stuff. I haven't seen fire white in either of our trees um, at the Heritage Orchard of those varieties. And I'm not sure what things are looking like at Sandy River. They've traditionally dealt with a lot of fire blight. Um, and so that has been a cool site to see where there's obviously a susceptibility <laughs> in certain cultivars. But I, I would say we, we sort of need to stay tuned on some of those specifics. And, and if you're driving around um, visiting orchards this fall, you could ask. I, I like to try to talk to the growers um, or someone who knows something at orchards when I'm visiting in the fall and just see like if there are any varieties that stand out to those growers um, or the people um, you know working the farm stand or whatever of um, of varieties that have just like held up really well in tough seasons. Um, so ask around, let us know, <laughs> let each other know. So it is the beginning of the season in which people might start driving around and visiting orchards and apples are coming on. I'm wondering, do you have any favorites that are showing up? Absolutely, yeah. So we just picked our first apples of the season in the Heritage Orchard last week, actually. Uh, great apple called yellow transparent one of the first ones which brings to mind a lot of the early season ones that I got to see last year um, some standout ones for me are orange sweet and crimson beauty as well uh, liveland raspberry is incredible we had a tree in the heritage orchard called peach of montreal that we sadly lost this year but really standout fruit yeah, I love summer apples. Lydia listed a lot of good ones. Um, Lodi is one that you can find commercially that's uh, not, it's a little bit more modern. I think it was bred intentionally. It's a yellow transparent progeny. Um, Lodi rules. Um, I also love Crimson Beauty. I was sad to miss our two that fell off the tree early this year. Yes, Liveland Raspberry, such a gem. Chenango Strawberry, also really nice. Um, Red astrakhan, did you say red astrakhan already, Lydia? Love red astrakhan. There's a lot of I've I've seen a number of old trees of those around, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of old timers seem to know about them. So, a good one to keep an eye out for. I'm also wondering if you have favorite apples for different reasons. So we didn't get too much into all the myriad uses of apples and why there might be so many different cultivars. People. Have, you know, might use one apple for sauce and one for drying and one for animal fodder and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering if you all have a favorite fresh eating, this could be any season, a favorite fresh eating or a favorite processing or how you like to use a certain apple. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know if this is like a popular opinion, but I love apples for their looks. Like I could, uh, there are a lot, a lot more apples that stand out to me just based on like how stunning they are than how good they taste. Um, but that said, I love apples that I can eat fresh. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, like snack-sized apples, apples you can stuff in your pockets, you know, like 
I guess they're called large fruited crabs in the like botany world. Um, anything from like the size of a golf ball to like a mandarin, great size. Um, I also really like low acid varieties. Like Lydia mentioned orange sweet. Um, there are a bunch of sweets. It's like a class of apples that um, that that name sort of like designates that they're low acid, that they were, you know, they would often be used for animal feed or making molasses or um, baking with milk. Haven't have yet. I won't try that. But dried apples are my other weakness. I really love um, an apple that's like that dries into like a spongy sort of apple ring, um, which a lot of the early season ones do and blue pear main, which is later, but those make really killer dried apples. Yeah, an early season one that I really enjoyed last year was uh, Thompson, which was incredible for drying as well. Just did a really, like the best dried fruit that I've had. Yeah, uh, Thompson, gem of gems. Which, yeah. a recent DNA thing, right, is um, the same as Williams or Williams' favorite, which was suspected for years and years. It's in the Bradford 1911 thesis. Yeah, I'd, I'd say Williams' favorite AK like Thompson, <laughs> both amazing and both the same thing apparently, but doesn't mean we enjoy them any less. <laughs> uh, I really like the Northern Spy um, for all, all purposes. It's a great all-purpose apple for pie making, cider making, fresh eating, and um, end of the season, I really enjoy Ashmead's kernel. They store really well and they just, their flavor is amazing. Out of this world, so sprightly and zippy. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lydia's much more of a baker than I am these days. So um, Lydia's a little more of a connoisseur of baking apples than I, than I am. The tart apples are generally good for baking, but we also experimented with some, with baking with some sweet apples last year, right? There are a few apple cake recipes that called for sweets. That was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Washington sweet, I believe, and golden sweet. I did a mix of Washington sweet and golden sweet into an apple cake and they just tasted like butter once they were cooked. It was incredible. Yeah, RIP golden sweet. Laura, back to thinking about apples just for their appearance. Since we talked a little bit about the distinguishing features of apples, I thought it might be a nice note to end our conversation on today about maybe a surprising looking apple or one that really is sort of a, a looker that you, you might want to shout out. Oh, totally. How could we forget about wine cast, Lydia? Um, they're not quite ready yet, but there is, we have an apple in the North Orchard. Well, actually there's an apple in the North Orchard and the South Orchard, tree in either one. Um, a variety called wine kist, which I believe was bred in North Dakota or South Dakota, um, yeah. but was you know preserved by a guy in Maine um, for a bunch of years. John suspected it was a Maine original. Um, wine kist is like, it doesn't look like anything crazy special on the outside, but it's pink on the inside. It's flesh almost like matches its skin. And it is um, one of the few red fleshed apples that is really good fresh eating. A lot of the red flesh varieties are like quite tart or a little astringent or bitter and wine kist is real good. <laughs> so that's a surprising look. I would also say in this topic of um, uh, apples for reasons other than uh, eating, 
there's a variety called Lady or Appy, A-P-I, um, Lady Apple, which is a tiny little crab and they're really perfumey and they were named Lady because ladies would carry them around in their pockets. They would smell nice. It was like perfume before perfume <laughs> back in the day of uh, not regularly showering. Do either of you have any other things you'd like to share today? Uh, I would say anyone is welcome to visit the Maine Heritage Orchard or either of the orchards on the fairgrounds anytime if you're uh, looking to stroll around and enjoy some trees. Um, I, people say that it looks nice at the Heritage Orchard. It looks, it's heartbreaking to me to see dead trees and dry grass, but uh, we do have a lot of nice uh, flowers. So keeping, keeping things looking good there. So feel free to come and walk around. Um, and if you do that, we just ask that you don't pick the apples. This, again, this season, while the trees are just coming into bearing, we're, we're trying to sort out some of the varieties if they are what we think they are. And having more than a handful of apples is really helpful. That said, feel free to take drops. Well, thank you both for joining me today. This has been a really fun conversation. You're listening to Common Ground Radio, which airs on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org, as well as on the WERU app. A special thanks to my guests for joining me today and for the incredible work they're doing to preserve fruit in perpetuity. I'd also like to thank Caitlin Barker for co-hosting and Claire Ballon for editing. Stay tuned for more great programming. Thanks so much for having us, Holly. It was fun talking with you for the hour. Yeah, thanks for having us. Catch you in the orchard.